0: We had merged with a bank uh, a group of bankers and they were going to take us public and we were negotiating for ownership and everything about our culture that was different they kept saying i kept bringing up and they'd be like yeah doesn't fit on the balance sheet it's intangible i'm like well then why are you here right like this is what makes this place special and by the time we you know we're finishing negotiation they're like we don't want you to be the ceo we want that guy over there who speaks our language to be the ceo (laughs) right they were just like we don't want you here Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now.
1: I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right
2: place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe.
1: So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're
2: enjoying our podcast, Please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out when
1: an episode lands. Absolutely, you have to be in the know. Now to this week's episode.
2: In our episode this week, we meet an entrepreneur who's been on a 30-year quest to find ways to create environments and networks for people to innovate and solve problems that really matter. We're talking about the amazing
1: founder and CEO of SheEO, Vicky Saunders. Wow, that's quite the tongue twister, isn't it? CEO of SheEO. Now, speaking of elocution, please excuse my croaky voice today. I've picked up a bad cold somewhere between Sydney and Bangkok, where we are today. You poor thing. You just found really sick. I probably sound worse than I am, I think. But now back to Vicky. Vicky grew up in Canada on her family's farm, where she learned early on to work hard and problem solve. However, her pathway to becoming an entrepreneur took place, unusually for a young Canadian woman, in Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic. Vicky spent four years there, where she started multiple businesses, learning as she went along. She also built a community of entrepreneurs there before returning to Toronto to found Canada's first ever incubator. Fast forward many
2: years and Vicky was mentoring a brilliant young female entrepreneur who was struggling to get funded. She realised then that the system was broken for women, with female-founded startups receiving less than 4% of all venture capital funding. Vicky decided she had to do something and figure out a way to get more women's business ideas
1: funded. And boy, are we so glad she did. And hence, SHEEO was founded. Now operating in five countries, SHEEO is a network of women who support, finance, and celebrate female innovators who run ventures solving important world problems – we talk a lot in this episode about the truly new model that CEO has pioneered and think it's such a clever model and a real game changer. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Now, in this episode, you'll learn what it was like as an entrepreneur in Eastern Europe after the Berlin Wall came down, how Vicky created Canada's first incubator, floated it on the stock exchange, and then got fired. Why? She thinks the environment you surround yourself in is so critical to your success and how women's radical generosity
1: is changing the world and how you can get involved. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the visionary and passionate Vicky Saunders.
2: Vicky Saunders, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank
0: you very much for having me.
2: Well, it's wonderful to have you. And I know you're on the other side of the world speaking from, are you in Toronto?
0: I am in Toronto.
2: Okay. So it's your night and our morning. So, well, thank you. Thank you for giving up your time. Now, we are super excited to talk to you about what you do today and also your journey but before we do as we do in every interview i wanted to ask you just for our listeners how do you describe to people what you do today
0: so ceo is a whole new model to fund and support women-led ventures so female innovators who are working on what we call the world's to-do list At this moment that we're at in the world, we have such challenges in pretty much every part of society. And we're looking for amazing innovators in the business world who have solutions to a lot of the challenges we're facing. So we fund them, and then we bring a whole network of women together to support them in growing their businesses and expanding those innovations around the world.
2: Amazing. We'll dive really deeply into what you do a little bit later. But before we do that, We really wanted to get to know you a little bit more. So when you think about your childhood, you know, you go back to growing up. What do you remember from your childhood?
0: So I grew up on a farm in a big family. I have three brothers. I'm the oldest. And I remember working a lot. So we had a pick-your-own-strawberry farm and... The children were the slave labor for the farm. (laughs) Yeah. So I've learned to work at a very early age, but I remember like my mornings when I was in high school, you know, my dad would knock on the door at 5.30 AM and he'd be like, let's go weeding. And we'd have 15 minutes to eat our breakfast and be out in the field and start weeding. And I have been trained for the ambiguity of the planet because my dad is super innovative and he would always be like renumbering the fields, you know, field one, field two. And then the next week, the field's numbers would change. So he'd be like, go to field one and start at the top. And the of the four of us would like run out the door. This is a highly authoritarian thing. And we'd be like, what's field one? And where's the top of the field? No instructions. And then we'd just decide that this is probably where we should start and then we'd hear the tractor come like roaring across the field what are you doing what are you this is the wrong field and we'd be like oh my god um and i just it makes us laugh we have so many funny stories and my dad completely denies that he was like this as a leader that's what we all remember is this crazy innovative person who is constantly changing their mind and holding us to account on all these things and all of us trying to guess what he meant, what was inside his head. And I feel like it just prepared me for the state of the world and everything I'm doing. Right. Which is nobody has the right answer. There, there are no maps to take us on this journey anymore. We have to kind of create a whole new world right now. And I grew up in an environment of like guessing, using all the data that you have to try and pick the right course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. It was kind of bizarre. Yeah. But we had this beautiful, so it started as a strawberry farm and then it grew into this entertainment farm and every dinner every night was talking about trying something new and designing something. And what do you think we should do next for this? And we'd all talk about it and dream about it and then go out and build it the next day. So there was this constant sort of creating something out of nothing, trying things, experimenting and building a family business, which was really fun.
2: You were working in your dad's farm from a very young age. And then I think you went on to actually study foreign policy at university. How did that happen? That
0: just sounds a bit random. Yeah, well, so I studied computer science uh, in my undergrad. And then I really fell in love with politics. So I mean, I, for some reason, again, my dad was like, computers are the future, you know, and we had an Apple in the very beginning of the whole Macintosh days. And so I studied computer science, but then I was like, in these labs until 11 o'clock at night with only guys And everyone had their head down and earphones in coding. And I thought, I'm so much more social than this. This is not what I want. I took a politics course and I fell in love with the professor and what he was talking about. And I just ended up sort of following foreign policy. I was quite interested in the state of the planet and the world and where things were going. And so politics became a bit of a love for me. And I kind of followed that path. And then I went in a totally different direction after that. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So maybe talk us through what direction you went in
0: and and how it happened. In the sort of mid to late 80s, I was studying Soviet foreign policy, which at the time, Russian foreign policy. And that was the time of Gorbachev and everything sort of changing and opening up. And I got fascinated by the transformation that might happen in the world around that time. So I did my master's, I applied to do my PhD. And just before I did that, I thought, maybe I'll just go to Europe and take a year and see if that's what I really want to do. And I ended up in Paris right at the time where the wall fell down in Berlin. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm already over here. This is exactly the moment. And so I got on a train and I went over to Eastern Europe and I ended up staying for four years. And that's where I became an entrepreneur. What did you do there? It changed everything. Well, so I was in Prague right after the wall fell down, beautiful, amazing place and hundreds of thousands of people in the square every day, hovel rising to power. And just like every conversation was now that I'm free, I'm going to do this now that I'm free, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm free too. What am I going to do? And so I was like, I've seen the future. Prague's is going to look like Paris in 10 years. Pick a business, any business, service sector. So I started an English language school, and then I started an import-export business because there were no clothing stores. I mean, I literally had no idea what I was doing. But I just sort of jumped in, and it was a, an amazing time where I was surrounded by dreamers, and everything was possible. And it was completely intoxicating. I still remember back to this moment, like, one day there's a, a tank in your country, and you're not free in your mind. The next day, it drives away and everybody flips the switch. So it was just a wild and amazing and exciting time to be there. Pretty intoxicating, I imagine. What eventually made
1: you presumably return to Canada? You said four years in Europe. What was the
0: the catalyst? Well, so it was fascinating. I, I did this one business, then I got another business started up, and my store was sort of at the center of the community, like downtown. And nobody at that time had any phones. There were, and I was part of the sort of expat community and everyone would come into my store as the sort of central place to leave notes for each other. There was no such thing as voicemail at the time and no one had phones. And uh, so I was kind of this hub for what was going on. And I then got everybody excited about starting businesses there. When I get excited about something, I just become an evangelist for it. And I share it with everybody. And so I got all my friends to start businesses. And it just kind of grew into this really beautiful ecosystem. And then I was at a party one day at the Canadian embassy. And uh, this well-known Czech person walked up to me and said, why are you doing all of this here instead of in your own country? And it just kind of hit me. It was like the question that I think about every day now, which is, How would I create an environment that felt like Prague at home? Because when I grew up in a quote unquote free country, by the time I was in my early 20s, I just had all these layers of expectations on me about the kind of job I should get and who I should be and how much I should be paid and all that stuff. And when I went to Prague, I felt like I got to reinvent myself. There was this environment of like, who do you want to be now that you're free? And it was like lifting that whole veil off me. And so, and then I got all these other people to do the same thing. So I'm like, wow, if I was doing this at home, how do you even think about creating an environment where you're free in a country where you're already supposed to be free, but you don't feel that way? And the question just pulled me so strongly. I'm like, I have to go figure that out. How do you do that? I've always kind of been obsessed ever since then about how do you create an environment for people to reach their potential and to do things that matter? I've experimented with that literally for 30 years. So you go back to Canada. And and what happened then? So I came back and I, I decided to start this international co-op program for high school students. It was a crazy thing to do, but I went to the largest school board in Canada and said, I'd like to create this program and, and I'm going to fundraise my own salary. I want to create this new curriculum around technology and communications and global understanding and business. And they were like, you're going to fundraise your salary? Sure, go for it. There's a desk over there. (laughs) And so I I ended up creating this whole new curriculum, found this really innovative teacher, got a bunch of companies to sponsor. And what we did was, and this is like in 1995, we had high school students study this new curriculum in Toronto, and then go and do an international work term with a company. And 10 kids went to 10 different countries. Wow. I so love
1: that because it's it's just breaking down the uh, the linear progression of you've got to do this step before that step. When, as you're saying, there's no need to have that sense of incremental linear progression necessarily. Yeah, kids still are to this day sort of almost more inherently and intuitively tech savvy than than adults. So there's such a logic to that. I think you actually span or listed the incubator. It was called NRG, wasn't it, Um, onto the stock exchange and That must have been quite heady times. Was that at the height of the dot-com boom in the sort of late 90s? It was the boom and the edge of the
0: bust. Amazing, elating, and painful (laughs) all at once. Yes. Uh, Yeah, it was was just really wild. And so, yeah, it was right around that time that we went public. I mean, it was such an exciting time because you had these super out-of-the-box thinkers coming up with Brand new, really cool ideas, some of them crazy and some of them like really great. And it was the very beginning of this concept of incubators and accelerators where you could bring people together in an environment that was different than sort of a corporate environment and achieve outsized results. And I, I think this is one of the things that I realized. You know, I've been an entrepreneur in Europe and in Canada in the 90s and now again, and then also in Silicon Valley. And I've really started to understand how the environment that you're in influences your entrepreneurial capacity, right? And I think we're having more and more study on this. So at Prague, anything was possible. Everybody was dreaming. Everybody was trying things. Risk was just great. I came back to Canada. It was super locked down, conservative. Any big ideas were met with, why don't you start with a pilot? You know, that's a little bit too big. And then you go to Silicon Valley and everyone's like, can you do it twice as fast with twice as much money? Mm -hmm. Every different environment influences how you dream, your boldness, everything. And so if we're trying to help people reach their capacity, we have to really look at the conditions that we create for you to be an entrepreneur or to be a leader. It really does matter. The soup that you're in influences who you are.
1: Do you think there's an optimal environment, you know, the the ones you've seen?
0: I think I haven't seen the best one yet. And that's what we're I mean, I've used my 25 years of experiments Mm -hmm. and everything with CEO, what are the factors that create a safe space for people to try things, to explore the unknown, to come together in a way that's, you know, we call it radical generosity. Imagine if you were surrounded by radically generous people, how might you act differently? And to date, like the experience we've had over the last four years with this is, it's very emboldening to walk into a place where people lift you up and say, how can I help you? As opposed to... Prove to me you can do that before you get started. It's literally the opposite. And we're seeing incredible business results because people are surrounded by that radically generous spirit as opposed to, you know, someone who is asking you to prove everything before you start. It's not safe. That,
2: that's really, really interesting. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, there's the whole ecosystem around entrepreneurs. But, you know, as we move forward, I think we're going to need more intrapreneurs as well. Totally. Yeah. How do you think that, you know, a corporate environment could cultivate that?
0: Thank you for making the distinction there. Because I think when I say the word entrepreneur, I mean someone who's a history maker in whatever environment they're in. I use it very, very broadly. I don't use the sort of definition of someone who exploits a market niche for profit. Like, that's not how I think of an entrepreneur. I just really think that we should all be paying a lot of attention to the culture that we're creating. And the cultures that we walk into because they dictate our ability to reach our potential. And so for some people, a corporate structure with a lot of structure and hierarchy, et cetera, really works for them. And for others, it doesn't. And I think one of the key things that we all need to figure out as individuals is what motivates us, what environments are the right environments for us, what suits us, you know?
2: And I guess that's a challenge for many corporates because they have to actually think really differently about the whole corporate structure and, as you said, the culture that they're creating?
0: I think a lot of the structures that we have today were set for a different time and they weren't created with trust in mind. A lot of them, you know, it was more about control from my perspective. They were just set up really differently. And I, we all have extremely busy lives. We have two people working in most households. We've gotten onto this sort of work 24-7, always on approach, which I think is not set up to make us well, (laughs) to make us happy. We had to rethink a lot of the systems and structures that we have because they're just not working anymore for the the kind of world that we've created. Mm.
2: I think that 24-7 grind, (laughs) you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people think that they just have to keep working harder rather than smarter. What are some of the ways that you think about your days,
0: you know, rather than 24-7? How does your day work? Yeah, well, so I have this term that we all use at the office, which is follow the energy. So, I mean, if I'm feeling super energized, you know, I just flow with it. And sometimes when I'm not, I don't. And I just go to a movie in the middle of the day if I need to.
2: I love that idea. That's so great. I mean, just
0: like people, I mean, this is like this person said this to me years ago, and it's such a duh, of course, but I don't think we most of us operate this way, which is people don't do great work when they don't want to. Yeah. Hello, right? you can't force people to do stuff. So give people the flexibility. And so, you know, in our workplace, a couple of things we do is basically four days, we're kind of in the office. Obviously, if you need to get some flexibility, you can, but Fridays are work at home for everybody and afternoons are off to integrate. Think about what you've done this week. What's the learning? What do you want to shift? What's working for you? What isn't a lot of integration? Cause we have pretty fast pace going on. We close the office for three weeks uh, at Christmas and then we close it for a couple of other weeks during the year to just create space and it's closed for everybody. Everyone's off. And then of course we have, you know, flexible holidays, take time when you need to. And then we have a couple of really sort of busy times during the year, but it's it's trying to set this pace and we can do that because we're not doing crisis management, right? We don't need to be on 24/7, so we can create our own rules. I don't think all businesses are set up to create that much flexibility, but The most productive time for me is when I'm doing four-day work weeks. I just feel so much more creative. I have this downtime to reflect, to rethink, and I'm not always on that wheel constantly just reacting to everything and therefore not really thinking. How do you do your down day? Because it sounds like
1: there's quite a bit of work thinking that happens there or or are some down days completely not to do with work at all?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, last Friday – I sort of had a theme around it, which was, I'm just going to go have meetings that I have no idea where they're going. No idea. I'm just going to like put some time into some things that are kind of calling me as opposed to like, this meeting is attached to this outcome, <laughs> which is this priority on the top of this list. You know, like I think sometimes just going out and having random meetings that aren't a hundred percent aligned with until you actually get in the meeting, you have no idea where they're actually going. I like to do that sometimes. did be surprised.
2: It's so funny because we're looking at each other because you sound just like
1: Greta, how Greta
2: needs to operate.
1: <laughs> yes. When you especially when you're saying meetings with no predetermined agenda and that sort of thing, I think there's a lot of similarities and I'm kind of going, okay, I think I need to fly to Toronto and shatter you for a week or two because Yay, yeah, my my energy has been really drained lately because we've had a lot of deadlines and a lot of deliverables. And so I keep saying to Claire, I have to get out. I'm in this insular bubble. I need to go meet people. <laughs>
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Like when I get down, my husband is like such a huge partner to me in all of this stuff. He's just awesome. He notices stuff about me that I don't notice. He'll look at me and he goes, I think you just need to go have a meeting. (laughs) <laughs> like, you, you haven't you haven't talked to enough people in the last couple of days, and I can tell you're looking like you're getting kind of down. Go have a meeting. Just go meet anyone. Doesn't matter who. Just go. So it's kind of funny. Like, it, and that's the thing I think is very important about not being isolated as an entrepreneur is like to be in relationship with other people because they can notice things you don't notice about yourself.
1: Yes, so true. No, it's very <laughs> very interesting. Anyway, enough about me. And actually, I'm intrigued because I think I read that your
2: husband is in a very different field to you I think he's a is he a sage and a healer
0: is that right (laughs) yes he was a teacher he won the prime minister's award for national award for teacher in Canada he's just brilliant at creating these learning environments so I've just learned so much from him he's retired now but yeah he's into everything Reiki energy work reading people's energy he's he's just yeah he's a bit of everything very switched on super curious guy
2: And how did your path cross? Because it doesn't, I suppose it it was probably in education, but you seem like, you know, the high energy entrepreneur.
0: How did your worlds collide? Well, so when I came back to Canada from Prague and was looking for really innovative teachers for this program that I was creating, every road led to him. Like everyone's like, oh my God, you have to talk to Richard Ford, Richard Ford, Richard Ford. And so I went to his classroom and I couldn't find him because the kids were running everything. It was like the most upside-down, topsy-turvy classroom you've ever walked into. He was running this thing called the Creative Inquiry Center, and they had put all the computers from the school in one room, and all of the subjects kind of came in and out of his room. And he would integrate technology into every subject with the kids. So he'd give them projects based on technology in his room. and But they, the kids literally ran everything. He blew my mind on how he did things. He had super high trust. He gave impossible deadlines three times in a row. That was his thing. He's like, if you give someone an impossible deadline three times in a row, with a lot of love and encouragement that they can do it, they get in this upward spiral of stretching themselves, which just becomes a lifelong learning thing. And I watched it over and over. I'm like, oh, you know, like the first time I went to him and I said, I need some kids to create a website. He called over two grade nines and he said, this lady wants you to create a website. Do you know how to create a website? They're like, nope. And he goes, okay, well, it's Friday afternoon. You need to have it done by Monday. And I looked at him. I'm like, (laughs) who is this weirdo? Like, what is he talking about? They just said they didn't know how to do it. He's like, Oh, they'll learn on the weekend. I'm like, what? And of course they came back and they were three quarters done. Yeah. And then that he gave them some other impossible crazy thing. They worked all weekend to get it done because anytime he got anywhere near someone, he could just infuse them with confidence. And like, I believe in you, you'll figure it out. Go. And so I learned a lot about, you know, how to actually work with people And to not be the person who is the arbiter of what you could do. Like, I think that's the biggest thing. We just set the bar way too low for almost everyone, including ourselves. So I learned from him, just push those limits. Whoa, it was amazing. I wish we could bottle what he's got and
2: give that to leaders around the world. Wouldn't that be amazing?
0: Yeah, well, I think it starts with trusting yourself, right? You can't create that kind of environment unless you trust yourself. Like most of the blocks we have with other people is about our own limitations. And so you have to do a lot of personal work and a lot of recognition of that in order to be a great leader, I think.
1: What's the biggest thing about trusting yourself, do you think? Is it trusting your capabilities and and having bigger dreams? Is that kind of the essence of it? Or do you mean something different?
0: Yeah. So, for example, I started SheEO without having a clue how it would scale. And I just trusted that the path would open up. Right, as opposed to trying to figure it all out first, mm-hmm. I trust in my ability to figure things out. And it took me a long time to trust in that because I think really differently than a lot of people. And I've had a very different mindset around the kind of world I want to live in for a very long time. And I was not surrounded by people who felt the same way. So I kept thinking, what's wrong with me? Or why doesn't anyone else get what I'm saying? And I was so frustrated because I couldn't find the language. And I, I'm a visionary, right? So I see a different world than we are in. And it's hard sometimes to explain that to people. It took me a long time to build up the confidence in the fact that I'm right. Like the way I'm doing things is the way for me. And I have something unique that I'm seeing in the world and I need to bring it forth. And it doesn't matter if that person over there doesn't get it. I'm not going to try and convince them. I trust in myself to do that. So it's it's a mix of all those pieces for me. Mm, that's really in great and interesting to hear. Speaking of
1: bringing forth CEO into the world, I'd love to sort of cast your mind back. You'd been working with kids and teenagers and the like previously. What was the catalyst or the the piece of information that you came across that made you want to do something around females and entrepreneurship?
0: Yeah, so I have to say I avoided doing anything female only almost my whole life because I grew up in this family full of boys. I live in this world that we live in, which is not designed really to support women on our own terms. And anything that's woman only, I noticed did not get a lot of value. It was like, oh, that's just a woman's thing. And we're in a different time now. Thank God. Uh, Everything's much different. But for a long, long time, I really just feel like I was cultured to not do anything with Mm -hmm. women. If you want to be really successful, you like get into the boys track and hang out with the boys and whatever. So I was cultured not to do those things. And then, you know, when my company was going public, I had a pretty painful experience. We had merged with a bank, uh, a group of bankers, and they were going to take us public and we were negotiating for ownership and everything about our culture that was different. They kept saying, I kept bringing up and they'd be like, yeah, it doesn't fit on the balance sheet. It's intangible, quote unquote, to everything that was Mm. unique about our business. And I'm like, well, then why are you here? Right? Like, this is what makes this place special. And they're like, when you're negotiating, it's only what fits on this financial spreadsheet. And I was so perplexed by this and so unable to find the words to value the intangibles that, you know, by the end of the whole thing, I think we had a hard time with each other. Yeah. And by the time we you know, we're finishing negotiation, they're like, we don't want you to be the CEO. We want that guy over there who speaks our language to be the CEO, <laughs> right? They were just like, we don't want you here. So I had a really rough time with that going through it. And then fast forward 20 years I was mentoring an amazing young woman who had a rocket ship of a company, kind of like I did back in the day. And I started to see all of the sharks surround her and say exactly the same things to her that they had said to me 20 years before. And I thought, oh my God, this is part of why the world is the way it is. It's Mm. all part of the design, right? It is designed to not have anyone who's really different doing things. It's designed to fund the same people who look the same, who are going with the same mindset? It's not to create new approaches, and most of those people are like white men or dudes in hoodies, and, and it's worse now than it has ever been. I think in terms of like this monoculture of what we think is innovation. I mean, innovation in tech—that's what's in the sentence. If you're not tech, you're not innovation. You know, like it's really mm-hmm. brutal. And so when I saw that happening, I came home and I lost it, and I talk, I was talking to my husband. I'm like. I could go start a bunch of other companies, or I could really try and figure out how to solve this. And then I dug deep into it. And I didn't realize at the time that only 4% of venture capital went to women. It's actually even lower now. 4% of bank loans go to women. And we're 51% of the population. And I just as I started to uncover it, I just started seeing everything with a different lens. And once I started seeing it, I couldn't unsee it. And off we went. And so I thought I'm going to Figure out how to solve this. The biggest challenge that I had was really that I was looking through a five-year lens with everything short-term. And I'm like, if I did this for the rest of my life, what would the structure be? And that's where the whole design for CEO came out.
1: Incredible.
2: Those stats are so incredible, aren't they? The other stat that I think I read that you said was that less than 1% of corporate procurement goes to women-owned companies. Is that still true? That is still true. That is just mind-blowing
0: ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's statistically impossible for that to happen unless it's actually a bias built in, right? (laughs) Like it's just not possible that that's the case. And so, you know, we're stuck at this place where we just have all this inherent bias in the system and our systems aren't working, right? All you have to do is look out the window and look at the state of the world and realize why would we do more of the same? So as we're building awareness around women not being funded, what I keep seeing the world do is go create a female version of the existing male model That gets humanity to extinction twice as fast, from my perspective. We need to rethink everything. So almost all of our systems and our structures aren't working for the time we're in and need to be redesigned. And we're wildly out of balance. And we need to get back into balance between men and women. Women are making 80% of purchasing decisions. And we are the economy. We decide what the economy looks like every day by how we spend our money. And the economy looks terrible at the moment. It's winner takes all it's bad business practices, it's environmental degradation, it's extractive, it's a nightmare. And so we need to rethink those things. And so as CEO, we are looking for women who are working on the world's to-do list, which is what our term for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So people who are solving the biggest challenges we have on the planet. So we have uh, someone who has reinvented the walker in the wheelchair to keep people mobile. And so if you have MS. You can sit on this bike and start moving and it reactivates your brain and we're having better health outcomes with this super cool designed bike. We have someone who's invented straws that are edible made out of seaweed to replace plastic straws. And she's going to be able to do that for forks and containers and lids and like just amazing. Someone in New Zealand who's invented compostable courier packaging and someone in Australia who's measuring all these different analytics neighborlytics to create better communities. So we're funding all these amazing ventures led by women that are about creating a better world. And we do it with this community of radically generous women who contribute their capital, pick things they really care about and then open up their networks, become customers. And it's, you know, when we get all these businesses scaled up, our goal is to be funding 10,000 of them a year. We're going to have an alternative To the products and services that are in this economy that are pillaging the planet and we need to reinvent everything
1: and do you think ceo
0: is a key part of that answer i think we're one model that's uniquely different that's got all these assets built into it that are considered intangibles thank you very much back to the bankers you know so women's networks and our buying power and our expertise and this design that we have of export structures to help the businesses go to scale really quickly. The way that we've designed it, we put all these other elements into it besides money because money is not enough, right? Just the money doesn't solve anything. When you put all these other things together and you get us in community together, deciding collectively on the kinds of things that matter to us in Australia, 500 women came together and voted and selected five amazing companies that they think are going to create a better Australia that has the capacity to scale. And we keep doing that country by country and then connecting all these ventures and these women together to realize we have everything that we need to create a better economy, to create better societies and to treat each other better. We just need to rethink it all. It's Absolutely. very inspiring, Vicki.
2: No, it really is. It really is. And let's say, you know, our, our listeners are sitting there saying, wow, this sounds amazing. I really want to be in. What would, how would that look? You know, what would they do?
0: Yeah. So we call women who contribute capital. It's $1,100 or $92 a month. You come into this community and it's all ages and stages. So at the moment, 12 years old to 94 years old, mothers, daughters and grandmothers all in this network. You contribute capital through the website, become an activator and then ventures apply with their ideas once a year and you go online and you vote. So you read through the applications and they're not complicated. There's only 12 questions. We don't take any pitch decks, no attachments, no jargon, just very simply, what do you do? Why are you the person to do it? Why is now the right time? How do you make money? Like simple. And then you read through those and you get excited about the companies and you you know move this forward or don't move this forward. And because we have so many people voting and reading through the applications, we encourage you to leave comments. So everybody who applies to CEO as a business, everybody gets feedback you know, you can check a box and say, if this person isn't selected, I'd like to help them check the box. So it's been this amazing thing where we just create, because we have so many people helping, there's lots of people to help everybody. Then we vote to select these ventures. And then they come together for a retreat. They get to meet each other for the first time they meet their coaches. And then on the final day of the retreat, we turn it over to them to divide up the money themselves, which is a very unique thing. Yeah. So instead of deciding and telling them how much they're going to get top down, we say, there's whatever the amount of money is, for example, $500,000 on the table right now, there are five of you, we'd like you to divide up this money for the highest and best use of it, the most impact possible. Don't consider this the only time you could get money from us, but don't take more than you think you can pay back. It's a loan, a 0% interest loan, and we have a 100% payback rate right now. So we want you to pay this money back. So divide it up yourselves, and there's two rules. You can't give it all to one, and you can't divide it up evenly. How fascinating. It's crazy, because every woman I know would divide it up evenly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you just became best friends. You're like, I love you. I love you, too. Everyone gets $100,000 if you go home. <laughs> yes, yeah. But instead, it's like, no, really, because not everyone needs the same amount. And yeah. so what is the highest and best use of that? And you're the custodians of 500 women's gift to you. And so what's that going to look like? It's just a beautiful process. And then all of us get together in an online community. We come and celebrate when the ventures are selected at this big summit. So you get to meet all the other women. It's an amazing network of radically generous women. So everyone who contributes capital, now that's your network. You can ask for help. You can support each other. You can become each other's customers. You can become mentors to each other, advisors. Uh, It's just a beautiful network of women who are there to help each other and lift each other up.
2: Yeah, it sounds really inspiring. What's been the most surprising thing that's sort of come out of this network for you?
0: A whole bunch of things. First of all, it is so crazy to see what happens with with an entrepreneur who gets selected, who's kind of been isolated. Most of us have been isolated, have been doing things on our own, kind of live in a world of scarcity in a way. I don't think we have enough. And all of a sudden you have 500 or whatever, hundreds of women who voted for you, who are like, how can I help? It's so crazy to see what happens with an entrepreneur who goes from scarcity, I don't have anything to literally, everything I need is at my fingertips. So within 24 hours of their asks, they're kind of getting what they need from the network, which is wild. So they start to dream bigger and bigger. And so to see year after year, the ventures grow. So triple digit revenue, usually exporting, full of confidence, feeling like they have what they need. is a completely different kind of person than the one who came in who was sort of not sure what they were doing, but to be validated by hundreds of people just as a game changer. So that part's awesome. The fact that as we are growing, we're just going into our fifth country now to see that we're kind of one step removed from whatever we need. That's wild. Yeah, Like to realize you literally have what you need. And so the big challenge that we've seen is everyone in the network would put up their hand to say, I want to help you. And then when we say how many people like asking for help, very few hands go up it's not something we're used to. Right. And so I don't know if your listeners think that through, like, you know, we all would help anybody, but like, do you like asking for help? (laughs) Most women I know are like, no, thank you. She's probably too busy. I know she said she wanted to help me, but I don't really think she means it. You know, I probably should know the answer to this question already. Like all that stuff that's in your head, shed that and go for it and just trust that, you know, we're here to help. And when we say that we mean it. So that's been one of the surprises. And then it's just in the world today, I think a lot of us don't really feel like we have the power to change things. And so in our network, you have to select yourself. We're not tapping you on the shoulder, inviting you into the community, saying you can be in our community. You have to self-select. So in a way, you know, we don't have a lineup of activators at the moment. Hopefully we will in the future, but it's kind of like an active, I call it an act of self-love to give yourself an environment like this to say, I am worthy of something like this. I am going to step into this and have that kind of support. Uh, I just, I see a lot of people talk themselves out of how they're not quite ready yet. They don't quite have enough money. It's not right timing, all these kinds of things that stop you from doing things. But when you do step into it, it's it's kind of mind blowing.
2: Yeah. And you mean as both an entrepreneur looking for funding, but also as an activator.
0: Yeah. As an activator, I think that's one of the biggest, you know, barriers that are out there right now is we won't give ourselves permission to imagine what that would be like for us. And even for ventures that we have, you have to have $50,000 in revenue to apply. And so for those that don't have 50K, I'm like the best way to grow your business is to become an activator. For $92 a month, you can have access to this whole amazing network and build up your business and then apply as a venture later. It's amazing that way. So it sort of depends on where you are in the cycle. Do you believe that you can be part of this? As we wrap up then, Vicki, if you cast your mind back What advice would
1: you give your 30-year-old self?
0: You know, I think I spent a lot of years alone thinking I had to do it by myself, and I had to figure out all the answers. And the number one thing I would say to anyone these days is just go find your people, surround yourself with people who have your back, who lift you up, who care about you. Not people that are just telling you you're great all the time, but really like who you're surrounded by will really determine your path forward, your success, et cetera. And so make sure you're surrounded by really amazing people. Find that community because it's so hard to do things on your own, but get surrounded by people that you love and that will help you.
1: Well, that's such a great and uplifting note to end on. Vicki, thank you so much for your time. If our listeners wanted to find out more about you and importantly more about CEO, how can they do that?
0: You can go to our website, www.ceo.com. S H E E O dot world to learn more. We have a podcast starting in a month from now. And so we'll be launching with eight in our first series, and we have lots of blog posts, lots of press uh, up on our website. If you want to learn more.
1: Fantastic. Well, Vicki, all the best. We're really so excited and inspired by the CEO model and we can't wait to follow your progress and we'll be activators and getting involved ourselves. So really encourage others to do the same. Can't wait to see where it goes and let's, here's to changing the world for the better.
0: Absolutely. We have all we need. Let's do it. Thank you. Thanks so much Vicky. I love how
2: Vicky genuinely has reinvented a way for startups to be funded and supported. It's an entirely new model, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And I love the concept of radical generosity. You know, that sort of language in business today is all too rare normally, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it certainly is. I also really like the way activators who finance the ventures are also called upon to help the founders where they can, whether that's with connections, advice or whatever. It's, it's really inspiring and exciting. And actually, the unique CEO model has persuaded both of us to become activators, hasn't it?
1: It has indeed. And we encourage any of you listening to do so as well. Indeed.
2: Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode with an international drone expert, Dr. Catherine Ball. It's
1: going to be great. Ciao for now.